We'll be reading all ten of the commandments, uh, but we'll be focusing today on you shall not covet. Uh, But before we come to that point, I just wanted to make a quick announcement because I hadn't seen them before. I just want to welcome a few special guests that we have with us today. Um, Jeff and Chelsea Lampin are RCA missionaries in Romania, and so they're right here. They just gave us a wave. Give us one more wave, so now we're looking for you. Um, We're glad to have Jeff and Chelsea with us. You've been in Romania now for two two years, yep. Um, I'm not even sure all the ways that we know each other. Um, Caitlin was high school friends with Chelsea back in Sibley, Ocheden, Iowa, um, and Jeff and I overlapped in seminary. We had a few classes. Um, he saw a really angry side of me in a class once, but he forgot about it, so he doesn't remember. Um, and so we're glad to have you both with us, with us this morning um, as you spend some time on furlough and as you just re- welcomed your second child. So We just like to do things at the same time, so glad you'd be with us, Jeff and Chelsea. Before we come to God's Word, uh, let's pray together. God, we do turn our eyes upon you, Jesus, to look full in your wonderful face, and that we may see your face clearly in your law, in the Ten Commandments that you have given us as a way to live into the centered and fullness of life the shalom that you intended us for. So speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. Allow us to hear and see and understand you and your call for us in the Ten Commandments and especially in how to be content when we do not covet. By the power of your Holy Spirit, speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, are eager to see you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs 
to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, Caitlin and I went over to the house of some friends to be with them. They had purchased their first home uh, not long before that, and so we went to their house and uh, got something to drink, had some snacks, we're catching up on life. And they said, oh, by the way, uh, we, we got a couple of new chairs. I thought, oh, that's, that's nice. And so, so would, would you like to sit in the new chairs? Yeah, sure, why not? So we went and, and sat in one of the new chairs, the, the newest of new, freshly delivered not even like thrift store furniture like most of us in grad school are used to having, like real furniture from a store. So I sat in this nice new chair, and I thought, this, this, this is a nice chair. And I said, oh, they're, uh, they're recliners. Oh. So I looked on one side, you know, for the lever, that like ejector seat thing, <laughs> and looked on the other, wasn't there, and started looking around for like a cord, you know, that has like the, the clicker button on it. They said, oh, no, no, they're just recliners. Right. So I'm looking around a little bit more. I don't know if I know how this thing works. So, well, they're, they're pushback recliners. Right. So I'm looking for, like, the button to push to make it go back. Like Holland 7, like the, the new lounge seats that you can watch movies, you know, in a, in a Lazy Boy chair pretty much. He said, no, 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 they're just pushback recliners. You just push back. Oh, ding. So I, I really just pushed back, and the whole thing reclined. Now, you know I'm easily entertained because at 26 or so years old, this was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen. You just push back, and it turns into a recliner. Pushback recliners. Who knew these things existed? So I enjoyed these chairs. These are really nice. In part just because I'd never seen anything like it, and they were just nice chairs. So I learned something new. Learned about something that I had never actually seen before. I kid you not. This is the first time I had sat in a pushback recliner, much less learned that they existed. So on the way home, as we drove back, I said, Caitlin, we need to get some pushback recliners. Now, this is a few years ago, so, so the parsonage was still, um, I, I believe the word would be cavernous, because there is such space, and all of our uh, seminary, seminary era furniture uh, basically went to the bedroom and like a small corner room on the main floor. And so the, the main living room is pretty much empty. And I said, we've got to get some pushback recliners. Those are just cool. And so... Caitlin was pregnant with Ada at that point, and she agreed, you know, it'd be nice to have a, a comfier chair to sit in as things progress along. And so we looked around, and, and we ordered a couple of pushback recliners, and we got them. And they've been in our living room ever since. Now, with today's commandment in mind, I ask you, was it coveting? Was it coveting? to see these chairs, to want them, to go out and get them just because we knew they existed. Was it coveting? Was my heart coveting when I fell in love with pushback recliners? Now, I'm going to hold on to that question, and I know this is a somewhat humorous and innocuous example, but I'm in a reasonably good mood this week, so that's the examples we get. <laughs> but coveting is worth being concerned about. 
Because if, if we've absorbed anything as a congregation through this whole series on the Ten Commandments, it's that they're not always as simple or obvious as they seem, that when Jesus talks about the law, he goes deeper with the law than just the apparent meaning. We found out that do not murder is not just don't commit premeditated homicide, but you commit murder with your thoughts, with your words. Not committing adultery isn't just related to having an affair. It's not just the sexual act. It's also the things that we see, that we think about, that we look at, that we lust after. All of these commandments have more to them than just what meets the eye on the surface level. And a coveting is particularly interesting because the other commandments have more of an action defined with them, and there's thoughts and words that go that deepen them. But coveting, the very act of coveting, is a thought. It is an action of the mind. And so what actions, what are the boundaries on coveting? Do we covet pushback recliners? And then maybe we start to go down a road of wondering, well, are we just not allowed to want anything? Are we not allowed to enjoy anything? Is that how God wants us to live life? And I would say no. But let's hold on to the caution because God's law is designed for us to live whole and centered lives. This isn't God's way of chiding us constantly. This is God's invitation to live in gratefulness and generosity for all that God has done, to live in the shalom that God intended us to live in. And coveting is worth being cautious about because it causes all sorts of other problems. James chapter 4 speaks of coveting along with a few other pieces. And James is one of my favorite New Testament books. It's one of the wisdom books. In the same way Proverbs and Ecclesiastes of the Old Testament are considered wisdom books, James is a letter, but it's also a wisdom book. And James chapter 4 says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures." James warns us by putting together all of these pieces that that the fighting and quarreling, which according to Jesus' standard is murder, these hateful words and thoughts, that fighting and quarreling and coveting all go together. That we covet after things that, that we don't have and we don't get them. And so we ask for God, but then we don't receive them. And the reason is because we're not asking for anything that has to do with God's glory, We are coveting after things that are just for our pleasure. Once again, the tension is held. Does God allow us to enjoy anything? Are we allowed to have pleasure, to want things? Yes, but let's hold on to the tension of where that line gets drawn on coveting and how we measure it and guard our hearts against the type of coveting that leads to fighting and quarreling and asking God for things that really we don't need things that we want to spend on our own pleasures. The way the commandment is written cautions us against all kinds of coveting. So when when the book of James and other places in the Scripture talk about coveting, they're given a very robust example to work with in Exodus. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
don't want what they want. Maybe we think they have a nicer house. They have a bigger house. Their condo association is a lot easier to deal with than mine. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or, or spouse in general, although this is written maybe to the leading men of the community. This is for all of us. And not just lusting after the person, but also not coveting someone else's marriage or maybe someone else's married, marriage status. If only I had what they had. If only my life looked more like theirs. I bet their marriage is better than mine, and it's because of my spouse. It couldn't possibly have anything to do with me. Do not covet manservants or maidservants. Don't, don't, don't covet the, the staff that serves one household over your own and think that your life would be so much better if you were in their shoes or his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So ox or donkey, we're basically talking about farm equipment at this point. And it's fair to not uh, covet um, what other people have. And this agricultural example is going to speak to most of the people there. Don't covet the color of equipment that your neighbor has. (laughs) About a year ago was when my mailbox got vandalized. (laughs) Now that I think of it, all that John Deere, I've got something to balance the equation. It's going to go up this week. Stay tuned. But in, in terms of the people of Israel hearing this, your ox or donkey, they're talking about, once again, equipment. And you think, wow, they've got, they've got such a better operation than we do. They're in better shape than we are. Or you know farmers who talk about, oh, I wish, they, I wish I was farming as many acres as them. Or maybe I wish I was farming as few acres as them. Seems like everything works out for them but not for me. Coveting is this never-ending cycle of looking everywhere else and thinking that everything would be better if I only had or was in their shoes. And we can covet all kinds of things. This example is, is not finite and limited. We can covet other people's life stages. Maybe we covet simpler times that we just long for the way things used to be. And we covet that era of time over being fully invested in the time that we're in right now. Coveting is an insatiable hunger, always wanting what we do not have, and always seeking and grasping after other things, but never being content. And so I ask again, push back recliners. Was it coveting? I'm very cautious about the self-justifying nature of the human heart. And yet today I'm going to say, no, it wasn't. And here's why. And if you have pushback recliners in your house, hopefully you didn't covet them either. But there is one fine line, there is one litmus test that defines coveting or not coveting better than anything else. If there's one simple secret to it, it's knowing this, content. Coveting or content. Because one other thing that we've observed is that all of the commandments have a positive and a negative direction. They have something that we need self-control to stay away from and something that we need discipline to apply ourselves to. And even the negatively framed commandments, like thou sh- all that thou shalt not, have a positive opposite. The positive opposite of thou shalt not murder is to love your neighbor. The positive opposite of 
do not steal, is to be generous. The positive opposite of not committing idolatry is to serve God alone. Last week, we heard from Pastor Audrey, the positive opposite of not giving false testimony or witness is to tell the authentic truth. And the positive opposite of thou shalt not covet is to be content, to desire and to be satisfied with good things, with godly reasons. Now, that certainly means that we're going to go after things that we don't need, things that we just want. And there has to be that line of knowing when enough is enough. But the litmus test for us to take into our own hearts is, are we content? Do we ever have an idea of what contentedness would look like, or will we always be looking after and towards the next thing? Will we always be comparing ourselves to our neighbor? Will we always be what the book of James describes as, as people who have fights and quarrels among them because we want but do not have, we covet but we can't get what we want, or are we finding contentedness? And when we find that contentedness, do we give thanks to God? There's a reason that we pray after every meal or before every meal or somehow halfway in between if you have a toddler. You settle for one or the other. Either the eyes are closed or the hands are folded, but something's happening. Do we find our contentedness, even in a good meal, that we give thanks to God for it? Maybe a better meal than we needed, more tasty food than what we necessarily deserve or needed on that particular occasion, but we can enjoy it and give thanks to God for it. So we got our two pushback recliners two days after Ada was born. And I only remember that because my parents had come up and they were at the hospital. And I said, by the way, can someone go back to the house and sign for two recliners? They're getting delivered today. And so my dad went back and just waited to forge my signature so our chairs could get delivered. I said, by the way, they're pushback recliners. Yeah? I'm like, yeah, you just push back. There's no lever or anything. Yeah, I know what pushback recliners are, Stephen. <laughs> Nobody told me about these things. We said the couch that you had to hit a mallet against the button to make the legs go out. But coveting doesn't mean that you never get to want anything ever again. And coveting doesn't mean that you don't long for a better world. It doesn't mean that we don't get to long for maybe a better job or more fulfillment in life. It doesn't mean that we don't get to long for a better marriage and strive for good relationships. We want and long for plenty of good things. And we can do these in right ways when we're pursuing the right things for the right reasons. And when we find contentedness and gratitude for that which we do have. See, when God told us not to covet, he's not trying to ruin all of our fun or take away everything we enjoy. But God loves us so much and knows our hearts so well, for he created us, that he knows how easily our heart's desires are warped and led astray, that the human heart just never has enough when it's in coveting mode. Thou shalt, covet, thou shalt not covet is an incredibly gracious commandment in which God says, protect yourself from these insatiable desires and this unquenchable lust for that which is not yours. I love you so much that I need to tell you not to covet because if you don't learn to not covet, you will never be content in this life. 
You'll spend your life chasing after meaningless things. You'll spend your entire life trying to look more like your neighbor and find that even when you look like them, you are still not content. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 113, puts it this way. What is the aim, what is the direction, the trajectory of the Tenth Commandment? That not even the slightest desire or thought, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all of our hearts, we should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right and good. The Ten Commandments reflects on all of the other ones. And we find that it's less about the stuff of life and where that line is drawn and more about are we finding wholeness in God or are we always striving after other things? Less about the stuff of life and more about finding wholeness in God. As we sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth, they will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If our fullest pursuit and our heart's desire is set upon Christ, then everything else that we might be led astray to want We might want it, but we will not be led to this never-content state of coveting. The Apostle Paul describes this well and what it looks like in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, in verse 11. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Whether in plenty or in want, whether hungry or not, I have learned to be content in every situation. To not be coveting, but to be finding satisfaction and purpose and meaning in God and in God alone. And all the other stuff that we can't take with us, is all part of what we get to enjoy and hopefully give thanks to God for things like food that tastes delicious, like a well-marinated steak, or whether the buck that we just got that's a beautiful trophy buck, or maybe even a pushback recliner by the fireplace. But our ultimate satisfaction that provides us the contentment that keeps us from coveting is finding satisfaction in God alone. And to know that when we have God, We don't need all the other stuff. Come what nice things there may be along the way. But this doesn't bring us to complacency. If we can trace the arc of the sermon, thou shalt not covet, which means you shall be content. But that doesn't mean that we're complacent or that that contentment just means sitting down in a pushback recliner and not worrying about anything else that's going on in the world. Contentment doesn't mean that we're lazy. Contentment doesn't mean that we just shrug it off, move on, not my problem. Contentment, if contentment is truly found in God, then the book of James instructs us that we will want and desire and pursue the things that God wants us to desire and pursue. And this is a contentment, this is a centeredness, if we can use that word from the series one more time. This will make us centered, but it will also make us ambitious, not lazy. 
Galatians chapter 6 was one of my favorite chapters growing up because of this particular verse, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good. Let us not become, when I was growing up, it was let us not grow weary in doing good. And the way you memorized it is always going to be stuck there. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a bountiful harvest if we do not give up. Now hear the context around this. And think of how it relates to coveting, contentedness, but also the drivenness to seek the things that God wants us to seek, to, to seek the kingdom first and not all of the other stuff. Galatians 6, beginning at verse 7, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And, whatever, and whoever sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal reward. Let us not grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will also reap a bountiful harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, that last line might seem jarring to us, especially to the family of believers. There's a simple reason for that 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 gets expounded later in the letter. If we don't know how to love each other well, we will never convince the world that we can love them well. If we don't love each other well, we will never convince the world that we can love them well. And so we do not grow weary in doing good among ourselves, but also for the rest of the world. We don't covet. We are content. But contentedness has a certain drivenness to us that makes us pursue good things. Think about the harvest feast this week, that we will not grow weary in doing the good that we were called to do. The particular calling of this place among these people, us, here at North Holland, we will not grow weary in doing the good that we feel especially called and equipped to do. And we will not covet other churches. Today we have our congregational meeting. Maybe as we reflect on the year, it might be tempting when we come to this point in our year that, oh, we, we covet other churches. Maybe we think about, well, such and such family left for this place because they were doing that. Oh, if only we were doing that. Or, or they left because this was going better over here. This is coveting. This is a never-ending cycle of comparing ourselves to our neighbors, but rather the success of one church is celebrated by us just as ours would be celebrated by them if we are truly focused on Christ's kingdom. A win for one church is a win for all churches. And so we don't covet the ministry of another place. We don't covet their budget or their finances. We just don't grow weary in doing good here with being faithful and participating in the life of this congregation, through tithes and offerings, through time, talent, and treasure. We don't covet other churches' ministers. Well, maybe you do. Actually, someone wrote, I covet how great Pastor Odd is on my notes. <laughs> Wonder when that happened. <laughs> but we don't covet what others have. Because that cycle of comparison will never bring us to satisfaction or contentment. And it will distract us from the kingdom work that we were called to, 
because we'll spend all of our time and effort and energy in trying to build ourselves up to look like someone that we're not and we'll miss the opportunities to do good right here. So we will not grow weary of doing good. We'll, we'll cook some food. We'll see people at the harvest feast. We'll keep after our building project. We'll keep our programs going. We'll continue to grow and learn. And we'll thrive and flourish if we are content. The contentedness that makes us not weary of doing good. It's a relentless contentment. Building stuff is happening. It's exciting. It's compelling. I think it even draws some excitement within us around what kind of growth we'll see. But once again, that we need to make sure that we're not coveting the wrong kind. That we're not looking for numbers or we're not looking to, to steal people from other places because we can offer better religious goods and services. But rather, we're doing the good that we've been called to here. To grow together. To not grow weary in doing good. And we do all of this from a wholehearted desire to do good together. Together for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. God, our hearts can be easily led astray. It's easy to covet. It's easy to look at someone else and wish that we were more like them or that someone we know was more like someone else. God, help us to be content with where we are, for otherwise we will never learn to be content with anything else. Train our hearts in such a way that we may have your heart, that we may seek after all good things. That just as you tell us not to covet, if we wonder how that works, we're reminded that it points us right back to the first commandment, to remember that you are the Lord, our God, and we shall have no other gods before you. We covet nothing else, but we seek and desire your presence within us, within our hearts, within our minds, within our lives, within the spirit of this place, in the culture of this congregation. Lord, let us be content and not weary in doing the good that you have called us. All of the good that we are equipped to do by your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray.